we're going to be starting a series here um, on Wednesday nights called Woven, um, exploring these, these threads through God's kind of grand story through Scripture, through the Bible. Um, I remember someone saying this to me or hearing that, I don't know, maybe I read it somewhere, but it was kind of a, a neat picture. You know, they said, the Bible is a collection of 66 books. Okay, it's written in like original language, like three different languages. It's written by like 40 different authors. It was written on three different continents, um, it, multiple genres over a long span of time. And yet there's this one cohesive message throughout it all. And it's almost like everything you said at the beginning makes me go, I'm already confused. Like we just 40 authors and 60. It's here's the point. It's, it's easy to lose the reality that it really is one cohesive message from beginning to end telling one big story because there are so many genres. It is so long. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's poetic, but it's long. And it can be sometimes intimidating, right, to think, crack this open and what's going on? Am I getting lost? How does, how does this little piece or this detail fit into the grand picture of things? And so here's what I would suggest. There are different ways of studying the Bible or thinking about the Bible. Let me give you kind of an illustration. This is a, this is a, is it an Afghan? I don't know what you call it, Afghan. Um, my, my mom wove this for uh, my, my wife at her, at her bridal shower. This is like 18 years ago. And um, it only, only smells like 16 years. It doesn't smell like 18. Um, and so she, she wove this for her, and she gave it to her. Kristen didn't say thank you, and they haven't talked since. So it's bad. No, I'm just kidding. They love each other. Um, and so there's, there's a way to think about how this is put together. And Bill, she actually put it on a loom and all this sort of thing. Now, what you could do is you could look at a particular spot. You could kind of look at this four-inch square and study the little pieces, okay? Or you could lay it out and kind of find one piece like this, this green thread and kind of trace it all throughout the whole thing. In the study of the Bible, that's kind of the exact same thing that we do as we study the Bible. You can either look at one particular section. You could say, what's, what's Paul's view of the resurrection? Uh... What's, what's the Old Testament prophet's, uh, Isaiah's understanding of the temple? That's, okay, that's, that's called biblical theology. Or just studying one book. It's kind of looking at a little snapshot. Or there's something called systematic theology. That's where you go, I'm going to pick one theme. Okay? Uh, holiness. And I'm going to trace that from beginning all the way to the very end. And what's unique about doing that way is when you do that, you begin to see the big picture story of how the whole thing fits together. It it starts to feel more unified. And all the little detail pieces, you kind of, when you run into them, you go, oh, yeah, yeah, that that hooks along that line. Remember that? Remember the idea of holiness? That's why that's there. That's how that makes sense. And so what, what we're going to do in this series is try to do that. And the hope is that over these next six weeks or so, when we walk out, that I'll be able to open up my Bible and go, man, this is a lot less intimidating for me. And I get how the 66 books and pieces and two covenants, all, all these things, how they fit together because I've traced the thread from beginning to end. 
Um, now, because we're doing that at least tonight, there's going to be kind of a lot of jumping around through Scripture. So I put kind of a lot in your, in your outline, and, uh, in your handout, if you want to follow along. There's an outline in the inside there. And just walking through a few points. But um, what I want to look at tonight is this idea, the big theme, the, the, the thread that we're going to trace throughout, is heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. Now, when I say the word heaven, think about this. I say the word heaven. What, what images come to mind? What, what pictures do you think of? Who knows what they're informed by, but probably something kind of specific comes to mind when I, when I say the word heaven. Um, on the first point here, the Bible, in the Bible, this word heaven... It's used in different ways to mean different things, kind of depending on the context or where where it falls in the big story of things. So let me just give you a couple. I'll give you kind of three or four. Sometimes the word heaven just means it means sky. What's above us? Um, it's just simply referring to what we would call the atmosphere or outer space. Genesis one one. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't mean he created the space where he's going. That's already there. He created the atmosphere, the universe. He created the heavens and the earth, the sky. Um, Psalm 148 says, God's splendor is above the earth and above the heavens, meaning above the sky. It's over all of his creation. Another way that this word heaven can be used is to refer to God's space, but as a metaphor to speak of him being Lord or transcendent ruler over all of it. For instance, the prophet Isaiah 66 says, um, God says to him, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. I rule. I'm in charge. I'm the God of creation. A third way this word heaven is used is to refer to God's space, but in contrast to our space, where we are. Psalm 115, 16 says, The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but earth he has given to mankind. So th- this is heaven or space where God's will is perfectly exercised. Um, What did Jesus teach his uh, followers to pray? He said, when you pray, say this. Your kingdom come, your will be done where? On earth, as, as it is currently precisely fully in heaven, up there, come down here. So that's another way that heaven can be referred to or used is speaking that idea of God's where God's will is perfectly instantiated and perfectly done. But here's... Here's the last thing we'll say about it. There's also a recognition all throughout Scripture that God is not literally located in the sky. Okay? Uh, There's that famous old line from Khrushchev when the Russians first sent, uh, you know, someone up into space. And when he came back down, it was in the papers and Khrushchev said, we've gone into space and we looked. Of course, this is from an atheist regime. There's no God. We've proved it. Well... Christians never claim that God is literally in the sky, but rather what the Bible asserts all through it is that God's presence fills all 
of creation. First uh, Kings chapter 8 is where Solomon, David's son, has just built the temple. And he's, uh, you know, he's going to announce it and it's here and he's settling it all. And he, he makes this statement and he goes, after he's got it all done, he kind of goes, wait, but will God really dwell on earth? And he says, the heavens, the highest heavens cannot contain you, God. How much less this little temple that I've built. So he recognizes God's not in a locative sense or location way stuck in one place. God's glory, his presence fills all of creation. Isaiah 6, 3 says the whole earth is full of God's glory. Jeremiah 23 He asks, who can hide in secret places so that I, the Lord, cannot see them? Do not I fill heaven and earth? (laughs) Okay, so this is is kind of where we get this doctrine. You know, sometimes you hear Christians talk about this idea of um, God being omnipresent, all present, present. This This is why there's that idea. There's nothing that escapes his view. He is at all times here, present with us. Number two. Heaven and earth are depicted as distinct, but overlapping, and this picture kind of gets at it, uh, dimensions, spheres of divine space and human space. Okay, let's go all the way back to the very beginning of the story. Go go back to the very first book, the very first location, um, Genesis, and we have the creation account. And what we have is what's spoken of as the Garden of Eden is this idea that God's presence is, is right there with humanity. There's no break. There's no distinction. They're different spheres, but the spheres are overlapping fully. It's like two spheres that come you know, completely on top of one another. And so what they're called to do is that Adam and Eve are called in this context of living in relationship to God. They're called to build. They're called to plant. They're called to cultivate. They're called to reproduce. They're called to worship. Everything that we think about in life, they're called to do under the direction, the lordship, the reality that, hey, I'm just a steward. I'm not the owner. God is the real Lord of all things. But of course, the tragedy is, in chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they reject God's headship. They rebel. And, and And so they're banished from the garden. And these two spheres don't any longer look like this. These two spheres, God's space and our space, there's this rift, there's this break in them. And so we're told that God placed this interesting statement. At the very end of it, he he banishes them, he kicks them out. And we're told that God placed an angel at the entrance to the garden, says, with a flaming sword. Now, the picture in the ancient Middle Eastern mind is what that means is you want to come back in, guess what's going to happen? You've got to go under the sword. It's at the cost of your life, which kind of defeats the purpose of getting back in. So it's a little bit of a catch-22 at this point. And the Bible uses different names for these two spheres, these two places. Uh, Heaven, the kingdom of God, eternal life. It refers to where we are space as the world, the present age, the age of sin and death. Different language, different words that are used to refer to these two spheres where we are. But, 
As you start reading the Bible, something almost unexpected happens. What happens is these two spheres have points of contact initiated by God at different places. A lot of us will know the story of Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush. What is Moses told to do before, before he can even approach? Yeah, take your shoes off. And then the why is... This is holy ground. Moses has this, ooh, space, this is sacred space. Why? Because these two spheres are touching in some way. Similar experience that Moses has uh, with the presence of God at Mount Sinai. Maybe one of the earliest ones at the beginning of the story, there's this guy named Jacob. He's the grandson of Abraham. It goes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And um, Jacob has this dream at a place that comes to be known as Bethel. Let me, let me read for you this description. Because this is how the humanity is starting to realize these spheres sometimes touch. And it's beautiful, it's awesome, it's scary, and what's going on? It says in Genesis 28, Jacob left Beersheba and set out to Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head. Can you imagine sleeping like that? And lay down to sleep. But he had a dream while he was sleeping in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to the heavens and angels of God ascending and descending it. There above this stairway or this ladder stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Jacob. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. And he reiterates the promise that he gave to Abraham. You're going to have all this land. Your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky, the dust in the ground. And he says, all the peoples of the world will be blessed through your offspring. I will be with you to watch over you wherever you go. And I'll bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done everything that I have promised. This is in the dream. And then in verse 16 he says, Jacob woke up. From his sleep, and he thought, this is his thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't even aware of it, he says. And it says he was afraid because these two spheres touched. And he said, How awesome, awesome in the sense of awestruck, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, it is the gateway to heaven. And so he named it that, the gate to heaven. It's the stairway to heaven. Not Led Zeppelin's. Totally different. That's totally different. It's, it's this stairway to heaven where literally these two spheres have touched and it's a gateway initiated by God. So God's apparently not going to leave these two spheres so broken and so far apart where there would be no hope. And so Jacob names that place. That. Now, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Um, number three... The Bible uses uh, these, these overlapping spaces of, of heaven and earth are, are, are always, or mo- most importantly, I should say, most significantly, associated with a temple, or sometimes the word is tabernacle, depending on if it's mobile or, or not. Um, now, because the Garden of Eden, that, that's the archetype, right? I mean, that's where the two spheres were perfectly aligned and united. Because of that... Anytime you, you start reading, you get these descriptions in the Old Testament. Hey, what was the temple like? Like, what was the old tabernacle like? What was Solomon's gorgeous temple like? Do you know what the descriptions are? And these are descriptions that God gave him. And when you make it, here's what you do. And he's like super specific. 
I mean, tons of detail. What's so interesting is that what's, what's adorned in the building, what's carved on the walls, what's carved on the doors, it's angels. Like the one in the garden, kind of. <laughs> there's palm trees, there's fruit trees, there's open flowers. What, that sounds like a garden, yeah. He's trying to get him to think, when you, this is a place that is the closest thing that you've ever heard of. To, remember that time when your first ancestors had that kind of perfect relationship with me? This is getting close to that. This is speaking of that in some way or another. Um, and so these different, the tabernacle and the temple, they're filled with things that point them to this sort of garden experience. There's, there's jewels and there's flowers and plants and all these sorts of things. And God says that the specific purpose of the temple is this. This is the whole purpose of the temple. The primary purpose is for him to dwell among and meet with his people. Wow. That's huge. The whole purpose of him doing this is to, I want to be with you. First Kings 6. This is what God says to Solomon after that temple. Solomon's got it built and he says, God, I realize you can't, you don't even, I mean, you fill everything. So how can I expect you to just live in here? As for this temple you are building, God says to Solomon, if you follow my decrees, observe my laws, and keep my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise that I gave your dad, David, which is that there would be someone sitting on the throne of Israel in your line forever and eventually on the throne of the world. And I will, this is the best part, and I will live among the Israelites that's big. I will live among them and I will not abandon my people, Israel. See, the union of heaven and earth is what the Bible is all about. It is what the whole thing is all about. Then Solomon acknowledges that while God's presence again fills all creation, somehow God has chosen to specially, in some sort of special way, hard to get our minds around, he's, he's chosen to live uniquely in this one particular location in Jerusalem and in this one building in Jerusalem and in one particular location in there. And at the center of this place is called the Holy of Holies. It's sort of a hot spot of God's presence. I mean, it's like where it all is. That, that is the, the center. Now you could experience God's presence by going to the temple. Right? Problem solved. That's, that's pretty great. No. Problem created. <laughs> um, as good as this is, God's presence is here. It creates a serious problem. Think, think about, go back. Think about the two spaces. What's God's space like? Well, his presence is there. His goodness is there. His justice is there. His beauty is there. What's our space like? See, sin, injustice, ugliness. Okay, so right away from going, how in the world are these two spheres? I mean, you know, they're mutually exclusive. There's no way that they could in any way be reconciled. So how is this problem between these two going to be resolved. The only way back into God's presence is under the sword. Right? Number four, this introduces the concept of animal sacrifice. Animal sacrifice is established as a means, as a solution for dealing with Israel's sin and injustice so that it would enable them to live in God's <clears throat> presence. Again, now, 
this seems, how many of you think that just seems weird? Like, what do animals have to do with this? And apparently nothing at all. I mean, we weren't even talking about animals. Why, why animal? This seems so foreign to our ears. It seems so odd to us. Um, listen to Leviticus. Leviticus is a book of, of, of laws, of expectations written from God to the Israelite people in their covenant relationship. And he says, the life of a creature, it's in its blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement. So what they're starting to get introduced to is that somehow this animal is going to go underneath the sword in place of me. It's not really paying for my sins, but it's, it's pictorially saying I realize that I can't get back in and still be alive on my own. And I'm not sure how to solve it, but I'll trust you with what little information I have. I'll act in faith by offering this, trusting that you will somehow figure it out, because I cannot figure it out. And so animal sacrifice somehow absorbed the sin when the animal would die in the Israelites' place. And it creates clean space. All this over here, look. Because that sin has gone into the animal. And it creates new clean space where you can now be able to enter into the temple. There's a connection point there again. There's a way of, I'm in God's presence and I'm clean. <laughs> I can use, one of the weeks we're going to be talking about this idea of holiness, and we're going to trace that all throughout. So there will be some overlap with, with some of these elements here. So here's the great part. If you're an Israelite, and you live in Jerusalem, you might be able to get back into God's presence. Great. Well, I don't know about you. I mean, it's not too many Israelites probably in this room. We're certainly not in Jerusalem. Well, Jim and I will be there in a few months. I guess you guys can come with us then. But I thought God's plan was to restore like the whole world. What about all this? I thought he was going to fix everything. Well, that's where we have to go further into the story. We have to go all the way to where we get to Jesus in the New Testament. See, in the New Testament, Jesus is described, and this gets to number five there. This is really interesting. He, Jesus is actually described as a temple where heaven and earth meet, where they connect. There was one of his closest followers, uh, John. He, he, he wrote one of the Gospels in the New Testament. And John started out his Gospel by, by saying this. He's kind of introducing this Jesus character. And he said, let me tell you about him. Listen to what he says. John 1.14, he says, The Word, that means God's power, active, initiating, creative force. God's Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's, that's how our English translations oftentimes translate. Do you realize that the word there literally in Greek is tabernacled? It says the word became flesh and he tabernacled among us. Jesus is the tabernacle. He's saying he's like the tabernacle in a whole new way that we've never experienced before. Because you've got to realize the temple at this point, the ark's gone. Okay, that was ransacked back when they got taken over by the Babylonians and Assyrians. God's presence isn't in there the same way it was. In fact, one of the prophets tells this sad story about the presence of God eking out almost like smoke. Almost like going, Are you, I'm leaving. You sure? You sure you don't want me to stay? And I said the people were just sort of doing their own thing. And God's presence leaves. It's gone. Where is it? Where is God's presence? And all of a sudden, John goes, God's presence, 
the word, it became flesh and it tabernacled. We got the tabernacle back. Not the building. His actual real presence in this way. And so... Now, in the person of Jesus, God came and became the place where heaven and earth overlap. He became that unique spot. Clean space. But the crazy part is, is that, interesting part is that he didn't just, Jesus didn't stay in the clean space. Um, He started hanging out with sinners. He started healing people of their illnesses. He started forgiving people of their sins, basically creating little pockets of heaven where people could experience God's presence immediately. But he did it out in that dirty, sinful, broken, messed up, dead, scorched world that we've talked about here. And then he keeps telling people the kingdom of God... Or the heavens, kingdom of the heavens. Think about that. God's rule. God, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then like we said earlier, he taught his disciples to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done as, or on earth as it already perfectly is in heaven. Remember when Jesus goes to the temple and he sees all the money changers? There's this famous story where we see Jesus maybe more angry and Upset than anywhere else in Scripture, and and the the temple, the way it's supposed to function, you know, we have somewhat of an idea of that, and he gets so upset that he starts turning over the tables and says he chases out the money changers with a whip. He makes a whip, and he's so upset. And at the, you know, afterwards, some of the Jewish leaders come in and say, what 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 authority do you have to do this? On on what basis can you possibly do such a brash? Thing. Listen to how Jesus answers. This is in John chapter 2. It says, The Jews responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them. Listen to what he says. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days. It says, They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? And John says, But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the, dis- from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture all the way back to Genesis 1. <laughs> way all the-, the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. One of these followers of Jesus later, this guy named Paul, Paul the Apostle, he wrote in, in his letter to the church at Corinth, he says um, in chapter 1, he says, For God was pleased to have all, the f- all of his fullness dwell in him. That's temple language. Chapter 2, he says, For in Christ the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, not in wooden structure form, lives in bodily form. Now, in number 6, we see, through the presence of Jesus among his followers, this, this is kind of where it gets a little bit to us. Through the presence of Jesus among his followers by the Holy Spirit, the church becomes a kind of temple where God's space and human space overlap. See, there's this unique thing, thing about, about Jesus' power. His death... His sacrifice had the power to to keep spreading. Um, and And then finally, even reuniting these two things in a way that will never break. Do you remember Jesus had this statement? 
he was talking to uh, his followers. In other words, he said, um, he said, I will build, that's, you know, I will build my church. And you remember he said, he won't, and the gates of hell won't what? Won't prevail. This is the gate of hell right here. Gate of hell is a, is a pushing back thing. What he's saying is, I'm moving into the gates of hell. Through my church, we're going to be moving out into that area. And he says, my plan is universal domination. <laughs> but a domination of the gospel, which is about love. About a God who will sacrifice and lay everything down to have you. To restore you. We were, we were talking in our, uh, in our chapel this morning about just, uh, if, if you guys were here this past weekend, you know that uh, Pastor Mark Orphan, our missions pastor, is stepping out into some other things. And he's been here for six years. And, and so we were just kind of reminiscing about the things that have happened as he's been in that, that role of, of leadership. And so many of the things that were brought up, we were talking about you know, going in, into some of the darkest places. And some of the language that, that Mark used was he said... For some reason, my whole life, I've always felt compelled to the darkest, most destructive, broken places. Well, that's because he follows this Jesus guy. That's because this Jesus guy was all about going into the darkest places, pushing back on those gates of hell and bringing life and beauty and fullness. That picture of the temple with garden. (laughs) A gorgeous, gorgeous picture. And you think about the church. Think about how Jesus speaks of the church. Anytime you go to... Uh, actually, let me take... Let me kind of stop for a second and... Um, uh, I kind of address a couple questions real quick. Think about this. Um, in the New Testament, when the church is starting, okay, and it's going... At the day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes. That's kind of, you know, the big temple idea, big temple word there. The Spirit comes, and remember... They see these like flames above, above these people's head. This is pointing back to that divine fire that was over the temple in Exodus chapter 40. Or Paul speaks of the collective universal church. He says this is God's temple in the world. Um, remember Jesus' statement where he says, uh, wherever two or more are gathered, what? The very presence of God is. <laughs> this is all temple language. Uh, Peter, in First Peter, he used the illustration, he says, you are all bricks that Jesus is building in his temple. So, we have to realize, like, we, we have huge ownership. If you claim to be, if I claim to be an apprentice of Jesus, I cannot be a mere, you know, seat taker upper. I can't be a mere spectator. I'm called to engage in each different gifts in different ways. It's going to look very, very different. But I'm called to engage in my world that is so broken and so very dark. I can never sit back and watch the professionals do it. (laughs) This is what we are about. But the ultimate goal is new creation. It's joining heaven and earth, what we talked about at the very beginning. Now, here's, here's one of the questions I want to talk about is, oftentimes you say, okay, so what happens when I die? Isn't it, you know, like when I, and here's my little uh, headstone, don't I, don't I just kind of like go over into God's space? Well, yeah, there's a handful of times in Scripture where it speaks about to be absent from bodies, present with the Lord. Jesus says to the thief on the cross, you'll be with me this day in paradise. Yeah, yeah. That is not the focus of the Bible. The focus on the Bible is new creation 
it's not disembodied spirit. That's, that's sort of folk theology. Robust Christian theology has its heart set not on life after death. It has its heart set on life after. Life after death. Resurrection. New creation. When these two places... I mean, read the book of Revelation. What does it speak of? You get to the very, very end of it there. Revelation 21 and 22. What does it start speaking of? Remember that garden? That garden's all grown up. It's a city now. It's a garden city. And God rules there. And what the pictures that he paints, it's the new heavens and the new earth. And the two spheres are finally, perfectly, and forever brought back together like this. That is the hope of the Christian. That is a hope that does not disappoint. That's why Paul can say things like, you know, when you lose someone, when your job goes away, when someone absolutely turns their back on you, when someone ha- has hurt you badly, they've said things, cry and weep and mourn because it's really sad, but not without hope because your hope doesn't rest here. We do not have a secular worldview. The Latin word seculum means this world. It means only that circle, not this circle. We don't have a secular worldview. We have, we have a fully integrated worldview in our lives. Now, we've missed one thing that we have to go back for. There's a scene in the Gospels, in the Gospel of John, where Jesus is approaching his, his cousin, John the Baptist, who has gained a large movement of followers and and disciples, and he's baptizing people, talking about someone who will come to restore all things, to bring the kingdom of God. And when John sees them publicly, the first thing he says, remember what it was? Behold, the Lamb of God, that does what? takes away the sin of the world. So what we realize is Jesus just isn't... I mean, being the temple, that's awesome. That's amazing. That's huge. (laughs) But he's not just the temple. He's the temple sacrifice. Jesus himself, who lived the... Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the Father. Every single second. So he earned complete uh, worth and value and uh, a complete merit. His account is full. And because he's divine, he's God in flesh, he's the word come. His, his life will count, not just like a one sheep for one person. His life will count for everyone. And so Jesus' sacrifice, it's radical. That's why the author of the book of Hebrews, I love the way he puts it. We're going to look at a scripture here in just a minute when we take communion. From this author of Hebrews. And he's, he's exploring in his mind, he's thinking about the reality of fact that Jesus is the temple and he's the sacrifice, he's the priest, but he's so different than them. You think about this. In the Old Testament, priests, how many times do they have to do sacrifices? Like again and again. What's the old phrase? No rest for the wicked? I mean, there's no rest for the priest of the wicked. You're doing sacrifices all the time. Constantly you do one sacrifice, you're going to see you've got to do another one. And so the priest can never rest. That's what the author of Hebrews picks up on when he says, he says this idea where he goes... Um, But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, you know what it said he did? He sat down. What does that mean? Like he's he's kicking his feet? No, it says his work's done. 
See, those priests could never sit down. They're always working. His work, he sits down. He says, finished. Last words that he said on the cross. <laughs> it is finished. It's complete. And so that's what we, as this representation of the temple, meaning God's presence, out in our world, that's what we celebrate. That's what we remember is that the only reason that all is not lost and we're not in absolute despair because we're over in this space and God's over in this space is because the man Jesus finished it. He brought them back together. And so we live with hope. 